London Property, home of Super Prime, where you can find informative, educational and entertaining content covering all aspects of property. Hello and welcome to London Property, the home of Super Prime. I'm your host, Farnas Fazaipo, and today we're in conversation with Tom Jeffries, an authority on the subject of leasehold enfranchisement. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Tom, tell us about yourself and uh, what you do in this space. Well, I'm a property litigation barrister. I've been practicing for about 40 years now. And um, back in the 1990s, I found myself getting involved in leasehold enfranchisement. And I found it a really interesting topic. Um, there's lots of law valuation and you get to snoop around lots of, uh, lots of really interesting houses in nice areas and meet lots of very interesting people. So uh, it's snowballed uh, and I've done more and more cases. Uh, and um, now I'm one of the specialists in this, in this area. Fantastic. Well, we're very pleased to be speaking to you today. And today we're going to focus on tenant improvements. So should we start by you telling us what are tenant improvements when it comes to leasehold enfranchisement? Well, people, people talk about home improvements, which covers just about everything you do to your house. But not everything you do is what's legally categorised as an improvement. So if you just redecorate your house or you change the bathroom fittings, you don't like the avocado ones and you change it to a different colour, that's just repairs or replacing what's there. But if you do something uh, that changes it significantly, like changing the layout or installing a new bathroom or air conditioning, that counts as an improvement. It adds to... The, the property from the point of view of the tenant and from a valuation point of view, it makes the flat property worth more. So that's an improvement. And how does the tenant improvement affect the valuation process for enfranchisement? Well, the, the starting point is the tenant has to pay the effectively buy the value, pay for the value of the landlord's interest in the property. Um, the starting point is you value what you see. You value the flat as it stands at the valuation date, which is when you serve your, your notice. But that can be very unfair on the tenant. If I've spent a million pounds doing up my flat, putting in air conditioning, fancy new floors, state-of-the-art bathroom and so on, um, that adds to the value. So it's seen as unfair on the tenant that he should not only pay for all that work, but then have to pay the additional value. In all the valuations, tenants' improvements are disregarded. So you, you have to value the flat as if the work had not been done. So you imagine it on the valuation date as if it didn't have the change layout, it didn't have the air conditioning and so on. Gosh, I imagine that leaving things to imagination must open up a whole uh, host of other issues. Can you also ignore the scope for that work to be done? Well, that, that's, a, that's a question that came up in about 2005 in a case called Fatal, all about uh, a house in Hamilton Terrace, one of the most litigated streets in London, I think, um, where there was a 
there was a house, 19th century house, which started out at 3,000 square feet and the tenant had built on top of it, behind it, and it, by the valuation date it was, it was uh, 9,000 square feet with the benefit of planning permission for all that additional work. Uh, and everyone agreed you had to disregard that and value the 3,000 square foot house that had been there before. But then the question was, well, what, what can you assume about the scope to add to it? And the tenant said, well, you just have to value it as a 3,000 square feet house. And the landlord said, no, 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 you have to take account of the, the fact that the planning permission was granted, allowing all this extra work, and you have to add to, the, you, you have to allow for the additional value of the scope to carry out that additional work. Uh, and the lands tribunal agreed with the landlord uh, and said, no, you, you don't disregard the planning permission and you have to have regard for, to, the, to the value of adding all that extra floor space. So typically what you do is you take the, the finished value, the gross development value, and you deduct the uh, the cost of carrying out all the work and allow for profit and risks and things like that. So you end up with what's called the site value. Um, and in that case, it was 25%. So yes, you disregard all the additional value created by the work, but you allow for the, uh, the possibility of doing that work, which in that case worked out about 25% of the, the actual value that was created. Okay, because you also have this in the Grosvenor estate, don't you, with the air rights above properties. So I guess when you're going for freeholds there, you have to account for that as well? Well, I'm Grosvenor, Grosvenor try and exclude the airspace and lots of people let them get away with it. But you shouldn't because they're not entitled to retain the airspace. But they do it because they want to hang on to the development value. And if you come along and you want to build an extra story, they'll want they'll want half, half the, um, the, added, the added value. Gosh. So on the subject, can you tell us about the Alberti case and how, how is that relevant in this topic? Well, yes. Well, that followed on from the Fatal case. That was, that was a case um, earlier this year about a, a house in Cheney Walk, owned by, uh, originally owned by Gerald Scarf, the cartoonist. And he bought it as an old house converted into five flats. Um, and um, he converted it back into a single house. And at the time, you didn't need planning permission for the work, the conversion work. He should have got planning permission for change of use back to a single house, but he, he didn't get it. Um, after four years, you're immune from enforcement anyway. So it became a lawful, what's called the established use of the building. Roll forward to 2014 and Kensington were getting alarmed at the loss of all the, uh, so many flats because it was in, increasingly popular to turn flats back into houses and create big mansions for people which were immensely valuable. So Kensington tightened up so that you, you needed planning permission uh, to, uh, 
turn flats back into a house. And what's more, they had a policy of resisting planning permission if you were going to lose more than one flat. So for this house, that Gerald Scarf's house, it, by after 2014, everyone agreed you would not get permission to, uh, to turn it back into a house, even though, in fact, it was being used as a house. So then you get to the valuation. Uh, and, of course, in fact, it was, it was a house with permitted use as a house. Uh, it was common ground you had to disregard the work, so you had to value it physically as five flats. But... Even though the time had lapsed and it was... Yes, because you had to disregard the physical work converting it ah, back okay. to a house. So you had to imagine there was a building comprising five, five flats. Okay. Um, but the question was what, what assumption you can make about the, the potential use. Because if it had, in fact, it had established use for planning as a house. Well, if it... If it if you valued it with that potential, then you could convert it back to a house. Um, whereas if you, if you had to ignore that established use, then we know you wouldn't get planning permission, so you had to value it as flats. And it was worth at least £2 million pounds more uh, if you could turn it back into a, a house than, than if you had to disregard the established use. So the question was whether you could, you could ignore, whether you, could you should disregard that established use. Um, and the landlord's argument was, well, look at that Fatal case. They didn't disregard the planning permission, so it would be odd if you disregarded the, um, the established use. And they said all you have to disregard is the work, nothing else. And there's no unfairness to the tenant because he didn't pay for the established use and he didn't pay for the fact that uh, you know, Kensington had changed its planning policies. That's just a, a quirk, of, uh, a quirk of, of history. It would be very unfair to the landlord if they lost all that uplift in value. Um, but that argument didn't, didn't work. And the tribunal said, well, you have to disregard the work uh, and you have to disregard it for all purposes. You have to assume it had never happened. And so you have to disregard all the consequences of the work not having been done. So if the work hadn't been done, it, 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 it re remained as five flats. It would never have got established use as a, as a house. So... Uh, you also had to disregard the, uh, the established use because that only came about because of the work that was done enabling it to be used as a, as a house. So the tenant did very well in that case and um, uh, got, 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 got the benefit of a, a greatly, greatly reduced price. The landlord is trying to appeal to the Supreme Court, so... Uh, that may not, be the, may not be the last, the last word on, on that, that particular one. And what do you think the implications of this case are? Well, that it's, I mean, the case itself is quite unusual, that, that, that particular set of facts, but uh, much more 
common scenario, um, which it has implications for, is where you have a planning permission. Say you got planning permission. I did a case like this um, earlier this year, where planning permission had been granted back in the uh, 90s to build uh, an extra story on, 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 top of, on top of the flats, and they duly carried out the work. So it was common ground you had to disregard the work, but what about, what about the planning permission? Well, you can't disregard the fact of the planning permission um, because the planning permission was granted before the work was carried out. So it, it wasn't a result of the work. But, uh, and this is the normal case, planning permissions have to be implemented within, within three years. And you can only implement them by carrying out development work, which is referable to the planning permission. So if you didn't do the work building the extra story, you have to imagine you didn't do that work. You also have to imagine you hadn't implemented the planning permission. So that planning permission, yes, it's there as part of the history, but it's spent. And in that case, as in many others, planning policies have changed. And the planning evidence was, in that case, you would not now get planning permission for, for the, same, uh, the same work. So you, you disregard, you in that case, you had to disregard the scope for doing the, the work as well as the fact that it had been done. So, you know, so, that's, so that's one implication. And then also you have to start thinking about um, licenses for alterations. You, mo most of these cases, you need a landlord's license for alterations. Um, and if, if it's a very simple one, you don't disregard it. So it might still be capable of being implemented. But in many cases, the license says you have to complete the work within a certain period. So if you haven't done the work, and you haven't implemented the license. Does it lapse? And that, do you need fresh consent again from the landlord? So there you have another risk factor. Would the landlord actually get consent in the sort of hypothetical imaginary scenario we're talking about? So uh, that depends on the terms of the license in the particular case. But, uh, but that's, you know, that, that's another interesting implication of the Alberti case. So um, in broad terms, it, it's going to help tenants. It's going to, uh, it's going to reduce the uh, price payable where you've got significant alterations which, which needed, um, needed planning permission. So if I'm understanding this correctly, in the case that you just referred to, the planning permission was granted, the works were done, but because you've got to disregard, you imagine that the works were not done, the planning permission wasn't granted. Whereas in the Hamilton Terrace one, there was planning permission, the works hadn't been done yet, but you're still paying for the benefit of the works well, no, to be done. Now, what, what they said in Fatal was, you don't disregard the, the fact that the planning permission was granted. And in the case I talked about, Likewise, you don't disregard the fact that planning permission was granted, but it, like all planning permissions, 
it's subject to a number of conditions. It has to be implemented. It has to be started within three years. And if you don't start it, it lapses. So it's no longer available. So that's what happened in my case. And that's what will happen in most cases. If the work was done more than three years ago, if the planning permission was more than three years old, chances are it won't be available anymore. Even so, though you've done the work. Even though you've done the work. <laughs> so you imagine the work has been done. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you, you know there was a planning permission, say, five years ago, but you will, you will assume that that planning permission has lapsed. So you will need a fresh planning permission. Now, in a simple case, you may, it may be obvious you get planning permission in an uncontroversial case. But where planning policies have changed, then you may may well no longer get the planning permission. So you disregard the scope to do the work uh, if as, planning, as well. If planning, if planning has changed. would no longer be available. Yeah, that's right. Wow. So, <laughs> okay. so you know, that, that gets you an even bigger reduction. So it sounds like there's a lot of uh, business to be done for pre-planning applications here for, for both sides. If somebody's going to say, you won't get it or you will get it, then the other party can go within three weeks, try and get some certainty on whether it will happen or it won't happen. Yeah, I mean, where, 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 where you have arguments about whether you get planning permission, it's, you, you, often, you, you quite often get a planning expert, but the simplest way is to go approach the council and do a pre-app, as you, as you say, and see what the council says. But you tend only to do that if you're pretty confident what the answer's going to be. I mean, if you're a landlord, you will and you're trying to emphasise you would get planning permission, you go and get some pre-app advice if you're confident that you would get it. So you can say, because on the valuation, you have to imagine a, a, a hypothetical sale at the valuation date, the date of the notice. And you say, well, the, the imaginary purchaser, would he be thinking, oh, yes, I can build this extra story. I better check planning. I will go and ask do a pre-app at the council and then the landlord produces the actual pre-app to show the tribunal and say, well, this is the response he would have got. So he would be confident he could, he could do the work. Gosh, it's no wonder you find it so fascinating because, you know, we think, okay, if all the leases on all these big estates are going down, what's next? But there's so much more to keep interpreting and exploring, isn't it? In this, in this, Subject. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 issues change sort of every every couple of years. The issues change. You had you had arguments about deferment rate, then you had arguments about the value to stay at the end of a long lease, and in the last few years, I'd say over half of my work has been about development value, and even though the estates have sold off most of their estates. Um, there, there, there's still a lot of uh, cases about uh, development value, in particular, the ability to build on, on top of existing buildings. Because um, as you know, there are now permitted development rights to build on top. So quite often the, uh, the tenants are worried that their building qualifies. They're worried the landlord might try and build extra flats. No tenants want that to happen. So they claim the freehold and make a collective enfranchisement claim. 
Um, and, um, and then you end up with an argument about development value. And the landlord says, well, I've got potential to build an extra two, four flats on the top of this building. Uh, and that's worth an extra few hundred thousand or million or, or whatever it might be. And the tenants will say, no, there's no such value because you wouldn't get planning. The building's not strong enough uh, and so on. I mean, I did a case about just that um, earlier this year. We've just got the result out. So I've done, I don't know, a dozen of those sort of cases now, both for landlords and tenants. So it's, that is a very common form of dispute uh, that, that goes on now. Um, where you've got lots of flats. And then the, the counter argument would be to actually see whether it's from an engineering perspective, it's actually possible, I suppose. So then yeah. you have to figure that out in order to argue with your landlord. Well, actually, the foundations won't hold it. Yes, exactly. Is the, is the building strong enough? <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you get where you get 1930s blocks of flats. They were often not, not particularly sturdy built. So um, sometimes... There's, there's an issue about that. By and large, you can put a lightweight structure on, on, on top. Um, but you can end up with a raft of experts, planning experts, engineering experts, quantity surveyors, valuers. It can cost a fortune to, to argue these cases, um, which is fine if there's a lot of Money value, to be value in yeah. it. But it can just eat up the... The, the amount at stake. Um, and we've had we've had the, the the white paper and the recommendations and all of that that is pending some changes. Do you, are you worried about any of those, or do you think any of them are really good news and they're going to open up another whole host of well, arguments? There, there's, there's, a, there's bound to be even more litigation as and when the new legislation comes in because it's going to be wholly wholly new. Um, and there'll be limitless new things uh, to argue about. It'll be like 19, the 1990s all over, all over again. It's going to be that um, big, you think? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, they're undertaking a huge task trying to, trying to rewrite all, all the legislation. So uh, there are bound to be issues about what, what the words they use mean. So as a barrister um, of leasehold enfranchisement, traditionally you had to be instructed by a solicitor. And can you just talk to us about how that's changed and how our listeners could get your expertise? Well, that's, that's changed because uh, they first of all changed the rules so we could be instructed by professionals such as, in this case, surveyors. A lot of my work comes from surveyors who know me, so introduce me to their clients. Um, but then they changed it again. So now I can work directly with members of the, of the public. Uh, and I'm very, very happy to do that. And with this sort of work, most of the people I deal with are uh, very well-informed, well um, smart, smart people uh, who, who can give me the information I need. And I'm very happy to work with them di directly. So it's a really good first step for people, as you say, who are already quite savvy in the subject. 
when they're trying to make a decision to just say, okay, I'm just going to pass this by you. What do you think? Should I go this way or that way? Yeah, if you've got a if you've got a, a, tr- a tricky tricky issue, yes, that's that's uh, that's right. Yeah, we've talked about how tenant improvements affect the valuation process. Um, can you tell us, in your opinion, what are the do's and don'ts for a tenant to consider? The advice I'd give give tenants, I mean, if if you're uh, is first first of all. Make sure you keep records of any work you do, particularly if you do anything, anything substantial. Keep plans of the flat or the building before and after you do the work. Keep, keep photographs, keep invoices, because all this is important because the burden is on the tenant to prove that, that the tenant has actually done all the work at, 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 at their own expense. And if you're buying a flat, which has been... Uh, which has been greatly improved, and you might want to extend the lease. Likewise, ask the vendor for records of the work they've carried out, because you can get the benefit of the disregard of the work your predecessors carried out. So you want to be able to prove all that. Any, if, if there's, ask if there was a license for alterations, ask for the plans, photos, invoices, all, all that sort of thing. Don't despair if none of that is available. And uh, um, quite often, if you have all you have is uh, like one I'm looking at recently, you have uh, a lease plan from 1989 showing one layout. You go and look at it now and it's got a, a, a bathroom in a different place. So normally the, the tribunal's happy just to infer that um, the tenant at the time being did, did the work um, because who else would do it and why would they want to spend the money on it? But there can sometimes be room for, 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 for questioning that, whether it was done before or after the lease was granted, say. So that's why it's important to have all these, um, all these records to be able to prove what was done. So since we live in a world of imagination, can you also say, well, hang on a minute, that was before 1993, you had no rights anyway? No, that's... Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a step too far. No, and do you do, is most of your work for tenants or is it tenants, landlords? It, it's, 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 a, it's a mixture. It's I, a mixture. Yes, so do you have yes. any do's and don'ts for landlords? Uh, well, I'd, I'd say to the landlord, uh, do, do go and inspect the property now and then so that you can see what's going on because you do quite often get cases of tenants carrying out unauthorized alterations that uh, you may not be aware of it may be you could have charged for them Um, and if you don't discover them and the tenant claims a lease extension uh, you, you 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 may find you're not getting all the benefit you could have done Um, had you been asked for consent. So go and check every few years. Every few years, because after four years it becomes... Check the condition of the the property. So you can take action if you you need to, if something unauthorised has been done. So, Tom, thank you very much for talking to us and giving us a, a, a glimpse into a very interesting world of leasehold enfranchisement. And for our listeners, you can head over to our experts directory 
to get in touch with Tom directly or if you're looking for any other experts to help you with your real estate needs, then our need to know experts can be found in the directory. Thanks for listening to the London Property Podcast. Head over to londonproperty.co.uk and subscribe to our newsletter to receive latest updates.